0: Good morning. morning. Carrie and I would once again like to thank you for the opportunity to be here with you this weekend. We've been here less than 24 hours, and I think Carrie would agree with me. We feel like we're with friends. We feel very much at home, Uh, have very much enjoyed our meetings together, have really enjoyed getting to know uh, better, get to know uh, Pastor Kendall and Melissa, and uh, feel a great kinship with them and also with Pastor Aaron and Amber, and uh, so very kind to us. Um, When uh, Aaron took us back to the hotel last night, he said, Now, if there's anything we can do, anything, you know, give me a call. I said, Well, I might call you and ask for a Coke at 1 o'clock. And he said, That would be fine. And I think he really meant it. (laughs) I didn't call him at 1 o'clock, but uh, very, very kind and gracious and generous to us. And we so very, very much appreciate it. It's also been good to see some old friends who I didn't know I would see here, the Depews and uh the LeBlancs. We've known them for years and we value their friendship and uh and then to make so many new friends and folks that I hope we'll meet again down the road. When I was a younger man, um I've I've been engaged in missions in some way or another really all my adult life. But when I was a younger man, I purposely avoided speaking from mission passages or from passages that were familiar passages uh, regarding mission because it just seemed like they had been preached over and over again. And I, I really thought there's nothing more I'm going to add to that. But as I got older, I started looking at those passages and I was began teaching and looking more deeply into the the text itself, and realize sometimes there's stuff in those passages that may have been not overlooked, but may not have been brought out fully. And so I've gone back to a lot of those passages. And one of those is the one I want you to turn to today. We've already had that passage read in our hearing in Matthew 28. We think of this as the Great Commission, and that's appropriately titled, It Is a Great Commission from Jesus, to his disciples and through his disciples to us to take the gospel to all the world. Uh, As soon as I say, turn to Matthew 28, in a missions-type meeting like this, um, I I assume, I'm sure, that many of you, the wheels start turning, and you think, what could I possibly learn from this passage I haven't already learned? It's probably been preached here from this pulpit in this room many, many times. I have no doubt of that. I don't know if I'll add to that, maybe I'll just refresh our memory, but I do want us to look at what is happening in that text and really try to think through together the flow of the text to understand precisely what Jesus is communicating in the context of the moment to those disciples. So when we look at Acts chapter 28, of course we know that's the chapter of resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to some of his followers And he tells the women at the tomb that they should inform the disciples to go to Galilee. That was, of course, where Jesus lived and grew up and served and ministered. And most of the gospel record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John takes place in and around Galilee. Um, As we mentioned in Sunday school this morning... This is not the very last time Jesus meets with his disciples. That record is found in Acts chapter 1, which takes place back in Jerusalem. So apparently Jesus raised from the dead, appeared to the women at the tomb, appeared to several of the disciples, including two unnamed disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. They ran back to tell the other disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them. And then Jesus appeared to the group of disciples, gathered together in a closed room. He suddenly appeared among them. We know that Thomas was not there. Later, Thomas is informed that Jesus has appeared and has has risen from the dead. Thomas was doubtful, and he said, I'm not going to believe until or unless I can put my fingers in the wounds. And uh, eight days later, Jesus appeared again. Sometime between those appearances and the event of his ascension on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, the disciples went back to Galilee, and they were there. And we don't know exactly how long they were there, but during their time there, you have the account in John of Jesus uh, meeting them along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They'd been fishing all night and um, they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus says, cast your, butt, your net in the other side. That's a very familiar sounding phrase. They'd heard this the first time they really began to follow Jesus. Years earlier, they do. They cast their net. They catch a great many fishes, And they come in and Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. And, you know, you, you're familiar with that passage in John um, t- 21. Um, but in, in that time frame... Somewhere in that time frame, Jesus appears to his disciples in what we know as the Great Commission passage in Matthew twenty-eight. Very often, when we look at this passage or consider what is said there, we begin in verse, um, um, either probably verse eighteen. Jesus came and said, "All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me." And then the commission itself, verse nineteen: "Go and make disciples." But I purposely want us to back up a few verses and begin looking in verse 16, because I think the context, the the moment, the situation really matters in this case for our better understanding of what's taking place in um, verse 19. So in verse 16, it very specifically tells us the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain To which Jesus had directed them. So we know who is in view here. We know who are the ones meeting with Jesus. It's the 11 disciples. There are 11 because by this time Judas is dead. So 11 disciples. This is not, we know that there were more than 11. At one point, Jesus sent out 70 disciples in pairs to go and evangelize. Uh, We know that there were other disciples who followed Jesus regularly from town to town, village to village. So this is the core group. These are those who are named as his disciples. And later we think of them as the apostles. And so they have an appointment with Jesus. We don't know what mountain this is. It could be any one of several mountains. It could be the Mount of Transfiguration. It could be where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. It could be any one of a number of places. But apparently Jesus had told the disciples, meet me at such and such a place. And so they went there. They waited. And then verse 17 tells us, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's a very important verse for understanding what comes next. So, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Who who is it talking about? Who is they? Well, it's clearly talking about the eleven disciples. Eleven people saw him. And among those eleven people, some worshipped him. And some doubted. Now, Typically, when you look at this passage, you start to ask questions and you think, what does it mean that they worshipped him? That's one question. Another question is, what does it mean that some doubted? And when you say they doubted, exactly what was it they were doubting? The normal answer, the answer I've heard given many times is they doubted the resurrection. But stop and think about that. That really doesn't make any sense. Because by this time, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had appeared to his followers and proven his resurrection by many infallible proofs. Think about this. When Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room, they thought it was a ghost. What did Jesus say? Touch me and feel me. I have flesh and bones, I'm not a ghost. I heard a strange sermon one time about why Jesus didn't say flesh and blood, because Jesus didn't have any blood, all the blood was put in the ghost. That's not the point. It was a strange sermon. Um, the point is, you can feel me, but you can't feel blood. You, you assume it's there, but you had to cut me open to find the blood. But you can feel me. You can, you have to, with me, you had to press a little harder, you know, a little bit. A little bit extra meat there, but there's bones in there, flesh and bones. So Jesus is saying, come on, let me prove to you, I'm not a spirit, I'm flesh and bones. And then he eats food in front of them. I think he just wants them to see it's not going to fall on the floor. I'm an actual physical person with an actual physical body. Uh, In Acts, in a different passage, it tells us that he drank in front of them. So he's proving to them that he is, in fact, the same Jesus now resurrected from the dead. And as I said, eight days later, Thomas, who was, we think of him as doubting Thomas, he's there in the room. Jesus shows up again. And Jesus says, Hey, Thomas, come over here. Put your fingers there. Here are the wounds. Go ahead or the wound on the side. Go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger in there. Apparently, Thomas doesn't do it. You know what Thomas does? He falls flat on his face. And he says, "You are my Lord. You are my God." Yeah. So, there's no disciple on the mount in Galilee in Matthew 28 who doubts the resurrection. That doesn't make any sense. But apparently in this context, in the verse itself, you have the juxtaposition of the worshipers and the doubters. So whatever the doubting is, it's put in contrast to worship. Are you with me? During Jesus' lifetime, have you ever talked to a Jehovah Witness? A Jehovah Witness will tell you that Jesus was never worshipped. And you want to say to them, have you actually read the New Testament? Have you actually read the Gospels? There were many times where Jesus was worshiped. He received worship many times before the crucifixion. But now something is shifted just a bit. Because now you have a man. And never forget that Jesus was just as much a human being, just as much a man as you and I are human beings. He was every bit God as God the Father, but he was every bit as human as you and I. And Jesus, the man, is now resurrected, glorified. The glorified, resurrected God-man appears to his disciples on that mountain, and some worship him. I feel quite certain that one of those was Thomas. Didn't take any thought for Thomas to fall down and worship him. But Thomas understood what all the disciples understood maybe in concept, which is you are the anointed one, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. But Thomas understood you are God Himself. Now, ask yourself, how would a Jewish person worship God? We see this in the Old Testament in various places in the Old Testament. What does Jewish worship look like? I'm not talking about attitude. I'm talking about actual physical worship. Obviously, there's sacrifice and so forth. But when a Jewish person wants to express their submission, their fealty to God, which is what worship is. It's an act of submission. It's an act of joyful rendering of myself holy to God. When a Jewish person would do that, typically there were three ways to show that worship. One, as I've already mentioned, is to fall flat on your face. You see some of the prophets falling flat on their face in the presence of God. Another is to raise holy hands, lift up your hands in the presence of God. Another is to fall on your knees, and you see that often in the Old Testament as well. I think it would be helpful for us if we look closely at the word used here for doubt. Like English and every other language, you can express an idea with a variety of words. In English, we could say doubt, we could say uncertain, we could say fear, depending on what we're trying to communicate. And it would be the same in the language of the New Testament, which is grief. But there's a word used here which is specific, and it might be helpful to know that that specific word is only used one other time in all the New Testament. There were other words about uncertainty and what we could translate doubt, but this word is only used one other time. I'm going to read to you where it's used and see if you can figure out what's happening. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Do you remember that passage? Matthew 14. Jesus sends his disciples on ahead of him to cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And there's a storm. And apparently it's pretty bad. Because the fishermen were scared. And suddenly, Jesus, it says Jesus saw them from the shore. And he decides to go to them. And he walks across the water. And when he gets there, they're afraid. They're even more afraid. Bad enough that we're in the middle of a storm. We think we're going to drown. Now there's a ghost walking across the water. And as Jesus comes near, he says, don't be afraid. It's me. And Peter, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. Oh, we get all over Peter because we say he's so impetuous. Our daughter-in-law posted something on Facebook yesterday. We have two grandchildren who live in Japan, far, far away. My son is a Marine officer over in Japan. And um, they have two kids, five, almost five, and three. And uh, she posted... She said, look at this video and see if you can tell which one is the uh, intrepid, you know, fearless one, and which one is the I'll check out every aspect of the bicycle before I'll ride it. So, so you see our, our, our grandson, Oliver, sitting on the bike, just kind of barely moving. It's one of these bikes with no pedals, you know, the little thing to use. That's a great modern invention, teaching kids to transition over. Anyway, so I, don't, I, I, won't, I won't gush over and over about my grandkids. I'll try not to. So, um, But there's Oliver. And all of a sudden, here comes Elsie. Vroom! Pushes him out of the way. She's just going at it. And it's really funny because that's so, such different personality. So in this context, uh, Elsie would be like Peter, right? Don't think. Just, just act. Just go. We criticize Peter for that, but you've got to love the guy's enthusiasm. You've got to. I don't think Peter is thinking, I'm going to show off. Or as we say in the south, show out. Um, I don't think he's trying to impress anybody. I think Peter actually believes if Jesus is out there, it's safer out there than it is in here. So Jesus, just say the word. And Jesus does, and he's out of the boat. But of course, he's walking on water. And he sees the waves, and he hears the wind. And suddenly it strikes him. I can't walk on water. And he starts to go down. And Jesus reaches out. And I don't think Jesus rebuked him. I think Jesus looked at him like I would look at Oliver. And say, oh, buddy. Why are you afraid? I'm here. I mean, you still don't get it. I'm here. And uh, the word Jesus uses is the same word that is used in Matthew 28, translated doubt in both cases. This word doubt, not in your New Testament, but in first century literature, this word doubt is a very um, descriptive word. It could be translated to waver or to be unsteady. In fact, not in your New Testament, but in other first century literature, it's used to describe someone who's drunk. You've perhaps had the misfortune of being around someone who's drunk. Right? And they're unstable. They, they look like they're going to fall at any, any moment. That's exactly the picture. And you can easily picture Peter on the water. And Jesus says, Peter, why are you so unstable? Why are you wavering? Why are you doubting? That's the word that Matthew chooses to use to describe the scene in Matthew 28. So some of those disciples, some of those 11 disciples who knew Jesus better than anyone, who had Jesus' resurrection proven to them more than anyone, some of them worshiped. And when they worshipped him, they were worshipping him for who they knew him to be. They were worshipping him as God. And I imagine some of those disciples are flat out on the ground. And some of those disciples are on their knees. And maybe a few of them have their hands in the air. But at least some of them are doubting. And I can, can you just picture this in your mind? Do I lay down? Do I kneel down? Do I, do I you know, it's like... You go to a church, and some people are hand raisers, and you, you're not a hand raiser, and you like... Right? I mean, I can just picture the disciples. Because they're not sure. Because it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the Anointed One. It's one thing to say that He is, in fact, the Son of God. It's another thing to look at Him and say, you are my creator. You are my God. You, a man, a human being, are my God. And some did, and some weren't certain. That's what's happening here. That's the context. That's the immediate situation. And then, in that moment, with that uncertainty, that wavering, these people kind of not quite sure exactly what to do, in that immediate moment, Jesus steps forward. And he looks at them, and he says... All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. In other words, Jesus is looking at them and saying, listen to me. Not only is it proper, permissible, appropriate for you to fall down and worship me. But you must fall down and worship me. Because I am the absolute Sovereign Lord of everything. Jesus declares here in his resurrection authority that he has absolute power. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. You say, how is this given to him? It's given to him now as a man. Do you realize that right now, this very moment, the one who is controlling the universe is a man? The God-man. But as long as eternity lasts, Jesus will always be a man. And he will always rule the universe. And there is no bit of dust on the farthest planet, in the farthest solar system, in the farthest galaxy where Jesus Christ is not in absolute control. And he tells his disciples, worship me. I have all authority. And therefore, because humanity owes me their worship, you go and make disciples. That's the context of the Great Commission. So before Jesus' resurrection, he accepted worship. After his resurrection, he demands worship. You have no choice. We know that every human being ever born will someday bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. If they don't do it willingly in this life, they will do it by force at the great judgment. But every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus tells his disciples, here's the new reality. I'm the sovereign controller of everything. Therefore, because of that, on that basis, now go make other disciples. Why should they go make other disciples? Because there are people who are not yet worshiping the sovereign king of the universe. Why did the Depew's go to a place like Argentina to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because there are Argentines who are not yet worshiping Jesus Christ. Look, the songs we sang this morning, they fill us with joy and hope and satisfaction as we sing out worship to our King, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we were created. That's why we exist to bring glory to the Father, and to bring glory to the Son, to raise our voices and say, Jesus is in fact King. And and the day you recognize that, and the day you come and you bend your knee and you say, yes, Jesus, I surrender. I give up. I stop trying to save myself. I turn myself wholly over to you. That's the greatest day of your life. That, that, learning to worship Him is the greatest freedom and liberation and joy that can possibly be experienced. Worship is not some sort of a set of, of of specific activities and a certain kind of song and a certain sort of service. And if we package it all up just right, then God will be happy. Worship is when we come and whether individually or corporately, we 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 surrender ourselves, we joyfully say, Yes, Jesus! Yes! He's worshipped. And he deserves that worship. And it brings us satisfaction and joy. And I've heard people say, you know, worship is not about emotion. What? How can you worship and not have some sense of emotion? I'm not saying you have to get weird or giddy. I had someone say, you know, um, worship is not like a football game. And I, and I said, okay, explain that to me. How can you go to a football game and just let, let it let it go? Whoa, you know, let it go. And you sit in your church and it's like, oh man, I better not get too excited. God won't be happy. Oh, I promise you God will be happy. Okay. So, worship is joyfully, enthusiastically, wholeheartedly submitting to Jesus Christ. But there are lots of people in your neighborhood and in countries all around the world they don't even know the name of Jesus Christ. I remember the first time I went to Cuba I was uh, I had some gospel I won't tell you the story of how I got the gospel tracts through customs. I didn't sneak them in it was a God thing they let me they knew what I had and they let me take them. Um but I was trying to give them away. And there was these boys playing marbles. So I stopped to watch them play marbles. And then asked if I could play marbles with them. Which they probably thought was weird. Because here, why is this cracker wanting to play marbles with the kids on the street? But I did. And I lost. And, um, <laughs> and then I said, boys, can I ask you a question? And they said, uh, okay. I said, do you know anything about Jesus? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ? No who is he? I said, Jesus. You've never heard of Jesus? And the kid says, is he a baseball player? I said, oh, no. He's God. Really? And I talked to them a little bit. I gave them a gospel paper and they ran off. Um, and, then, and then there was another group that they had shared their gospel papers with, and then another group that those people had shared their gospel papers with and I thought, I didn't really do anything here. All I did was talk to little boys and give them a gospel paper. Right? They want to tell others about what they've just heard about Jesus. At any rate, there are people like that all around the planet. But you know what surprised me? There are people in America. I meet people in America who don't know anything about Jesus. Nothing. But Jesus deserves their worship. Jesus has earned the right to be adored and served and loved by every person who's ever lived. And so Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples. Make disciples is one word in the original language. It just means do what I did to you. Obviously, you have to go. There's some imperative in going. The main verb is make disciples, but you have to go if you're going to make disciples. You have to go somewhere. Maybe it's just in your own family, or maybe it's in your job, or maybe it's across the street, or maybe it's across the world. But you're going to make disciples among all the peoples of the world, among all nations, among all the ethnicities, is the the idea. And making disciples looks like this. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do you baptize them? Well, you know, baptism didn't start with this verse. The Jewish people baptized people for a long time before this. In fact, we know John the Baptist came baptizing. It wasn't Christian baptism. It was essentially Jewish baptism. Why did the Jewish people baptize? Well, they, they baptized, uh, and by the way, they baptized by immersion. I won't go and get stuck on that, but they, the Jewish baptism was by immersion. And it was intended for proselytes for converts to Judaism to show that you were abandoning the old life and washing yourself of being a gentile basically so when John the Baptist comes says repent the kingdom of God is at hand be baptized he's basically saying you need to recognize you're like a gentile you need to be right with God and so that's the nature of John the Baptist but when Jesus says baptize him he's saying this is a sign of a break. This is a sign of disruption. This is a way of identifying and publicly proclaiming, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I now worship Jesus and no one else. In our circles, in our experience in America, this is not a bad thing. It's just because there is a history of Christianity in America, baptism is sort of taken for granted. And sometimes even little kids are baptized, and it's just sort of a rite of passage. It's something you do at a certain point to show that you're a Christian, and that's not a bad thing. But I can take you to places all around the world where being baptized is a life-or-death decision. The first time Carrie and I were together in China, we met some high school—I mean, some college students who had been converted— and they were wrestling with baptism, and we sat and we talked with them. And they were trying to decide whether they were going to be baptized. And I said, so what goes into making this decision? They said, when we are baptized, they'll take away our identity card. Identity card is, think, a combination of driver's license, social security card, whatever else you can throw in there. It's, 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 your, it's, your, it's who you are. You take that away, it's as if you don't exist. You have no rights. You can't get a job. You can't go to school. And the one student said, if we get baptized, we could lose our identity cards. could become basically non-persons. By the way, I, I, a month later, we saw those same students and learned that they had been baptized. I talked to a guy one time in West Africa. The missionary had dealt with this man. His name was Muhammad dealt with him for a while. He was a shoe man, a shoe repairman, a a cobbler, and um, he worked in the market, and we went by to see him, and he would either make new shoes or get old shoes and fix them up and resell them. And uh, um, I started talking to Muhammad a little bit about the gospel, and he said, no, no, let's not talk here, because he didn't want all the ears around to hear. So we met later outside the market, and um, went through the gospel, and Muhammad listened, and he agreed, and he said, the missionaries have told me all this. He said, I I believe everything you're saying, and I said, he's 40 years old, by the way. I said, Muhammad, are you ready to believe Jesus and to embrace the gospel? He said, will I have to be baptized? I said, yes. He said, I'm not ready. I said, why are you not ready? He said, the day I accept Jesus, my father will disown me and may kill me, That's not uncommon in the Muslim world. Even in this area, you've known people. Some of you may be this person. You were raised Roman Catholic. The day you come to faith and you're baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, people disown you. People won't have anything more to do with you. Sometimes your family will just cut you off. It happens. When we had converts... In our little church, I mentioned before, my first ministry out of college was a church planter among Hispanics in Tampa, Florida. When we had people baptized, we made a big deal out of baptism. We printed invitations. We, and they were nice, you know, nice, well-done invitations. Here, send these to your family, send these to your friends. And when we did a baptism, we'd have a crowd of people. It's like, we want to come see, what is this all about? And almost, I mean, it's Latin America, it's Hispanic, so everybody's Catholic, Right? And you have all these Catholic people out in the audience. And it was beautiful. We'd explain to them baptism, what it means to really follow Jesus. And then the person would give their testimony. And then we'd feed them, which also helped bring the crowd. But um, it was beautiful. right? So baptism is a big deal. It's, it's a way of saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm turning my back. I worship Him. I don't worship anything else. I worship Jesus. So baptize them, and then teach them, um, teach them to obey, to follow. And then Jesus says, um, I'm going to be with you. So he sends them out into a hostile world. He had told them before, you're going to go out and they're going to hate you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They're going to, you're going to suffer. Um, uh, It's interesting on The day of Paul's conversion, Jesus told him he was going to have to deliver him from the Gentiles. And over and over again, every time Jesus appears to Paul in the book of Acts, he tells him, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to suffer some more. Uh, Every time Paul delivered the message of salvation to to Gentile Gentile converts, he would remind them, and by the way, through much tribulation, you enter the kingdom of God. That's normal. We're the ones who are not normal. I was teaching a group of, um, well, they were Middle Easterners in Lebanon uh, seven or eight years ago, outside of Beirut. And uh, in this group of about 40 people, there were Lebanese, Syrians, they're all Arabic speakers. So Lebanese, Syrians, Egyptians, Iraqis, uh, Sudanese, uh, and probably some others I'm forgetting, Jordanians. And um, at one point, uh, we were teaching, it was a week-long thing. And I obviously don't speak Arabic, but with a translator. And so they decided to take a break and uh, have some testimonies. And so one guy, a Syrian guy, got up. This is right when the war was starting in uh, Syria, the Civil War. And this guy got up, and he talked about persecution against Christians in Syria. And I'll never forget this um, Iraqi guy stood up. After this guy gave his testimony, he said, my brother, I am Iraqi. I understand persecution. And then this Egyptian got up and said, My brothers, I am Egyptian. I understand persecution. And every nationality in that room, somebody stood up and said, My brothers, I understand. I too have experienced persecution. And I sat there thinking, I'm the only one in the room who doesn't understand. I don't know what that's like. But I'm telling you, that's normal. I'm not hoping for, I'm not even predicting anything in America. But if persecution comes to Christianity in America, hey, now we've just joined the rest of the world, right? That's the course of Christianity through most of the last two millennia. And so Jesus says to these followers who are now ready to go out and invite others to know and worship the risen Christ, I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. In fact, in the original, the way this is worded, you could read it, I'm going to be with you the whole of every day. There's never going to be a time I'm not with you. That's good news. So we do go to all the world with our gospel hope unfurled. But we don't go alone. We go in the power of Jesus We go in his name. We go to invite others to know and to worship him. John Piper, I don't agree with everything from John Piper, so I'm not trying to start anything with that. But John Piper, I think gets it right when he says, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Missions exist because worship does not. We go so we can invite people to join us as Jesus' worshipers. That's the nature of the Great Commission. The whole point of the Great Commission is worshiping Jesus Christ. So, as we conclude this morning, oftentimes we sing songs about sacrifice or we sing songs about the need of others. But I think a great way to end A a service about um, the Great Commission is the song that's been chosen. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. This is all about Jesus and all about worshiping him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today. We're grateful today that we have the privilege of knowing and worshiping Jesus Christ. We're grateful that you have brought us out of our darkness into the light, out of the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of God. You have given us the deep satisfaction of participating in worship of our Savior. And for the eons to come That worship will only continue, will only grow, will only become more magnificent and more uh, satisfying. And yet we long for those who do not know you. Those people we meet day by day, to us they're just people on the street or people in our neighborhood or people at work, or maybe they are faces on a TV screen of places far away, and you see those people as individuals and even nations for whom Christ died and rose from the dead and who, um, by virtue of his authority, should be worshiping him. And so we pray that you would send laborers and that you would use us in supporting and fostering and encouraging and praying for those who go to bring the good news of the gospel, the message of worship of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.